Bitcoin allows us to be in a position where we can learn how to be free again. Nobody needs to be put in charge of it, and nobody should be put in charge of it, and nobody can be put in charge of it. There's a fixed supply. You know exactly at what rate it's being issued. You have to work for it. Nobody gets any of it for free. It can't be stolen, can't be seized, it can't be inflated. Everyone plays by the same rules, and that's fairness. Bitcoin leans on reality, not on government. It doesn't know that governments exist. It doesn't know that fiat currencies exist. It knows that energy exists. It knows that math exists, and it obeys those laws and those laws only. Bitcoin doesn't look to the government to say, hey, you ought to do this because it said so on a piece of paper that men signed a couple of hundred years ago. It says, I'm now using the laws of physics and math to prevent you from violating certain rights. And there's nothing you can do about it. Welcome to the Staying Free Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Thomas Strohlight. Thomas is the editor-in-chief at Swan Bitcoin, which is a leading Bitcoin-only exchange. He's also written many articles and narrated the short Bitcoin film, Bitcoin is Generational Wealth, which I highly recommend people go and check out. I've known about Thomas for a while and we've had a few interactions on Twitter here and there, but it wasn't until last year that I started reading some of his articles and listening to his podcast appearances that I knew that at some point I really wanted to get him on the Staying Free Podcast to talk about some of his ideas. What I really love about Toma is that he's been in Bitcoin for quite a while. 2013 is an OG as far as I'm concerned, but he still seems to have a lot of very fresh perspectives on Bitcoin. And he has a really infectious excitement for Bitcoin, which is really awesome to see for someone who's been in the space so long. I didn't realize that Toma had a hard cap on time, so I didn't get to all the things that I wanted to talk to him about, but we still covered a lot of interesting and deep topics around Bitcoin, money, voluntarism, fiat culture, and other related topics. If you liked the episode, please give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, welcome. Make sure you give the podcast a subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to support the podcast, that can be done in three ways. The first is via Bitcoin tips, which can be done both on-chain and the Lightning Network. The second is a regular donation through Buy Me A Coffee. Links to both of those are in the description. And the third way is by listening to the podcast on the Fountain app and streaming sats while you listen. This allows me to earn sats whilst also encouraging me to keep giving you quality conversations. Tips are hugely appreciated and will go directly towards the cost of running the show. All right, on to the episode. All right, let's get into it. So, uh, Toma, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, you're absolutely welcome. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's great to actually get to get to speak after kind of following each other for so long. And you know, I've been listening to you on other podcasts. I've been reading your work and stuff, and you were definitely up there in the top kind of Bitcoiners that I I wanted to bring in. Um, you know, I haven't probably uh, prompted you actually just uh, before we started recording about the the nature of the pod. This isn't a Bitcoin podcast. Um, it's generally kind of more geared towards the freedom community that has sprung up since 2020. That, that's kind yeah. of brought together a lot of different minds, uh, essentially under the same umbrella of you know kind of fighting against um, centralization and kind of totalitarian control. But I do try to to have these kind of Bitcoin episodes like semi regularly because I obviously personally think it's it's really important. So you know that's 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 my audience. So I'm I'm assuming that there's a lot of people in my audience who won't have heard of you. Um, so would you mind just first of all going into a bit of your kind of background and upbringing, I guess, you know, from an early age and, you know, before the days of finding Bitcoin. Oh, uh, so, well, I don't know how early in age you want me to go back, but let me maybe just start at my 
career. I, I had I graduated from university with a master's and a bachelor's degree in business, although I was studying political science before I switched majors uh, and did a little bit of math in there as well. And uh, when I graduated, I'm, I'm going to be 53 soon. And so when I graduated from university, the internet was literally just getting started. Like Netscape as a browser hadn't even been released yet. That was a early development in my career. But I was really interested in uh, in digital media, which was CD-ROMs at the time. So I started working at an entrepreneurial outfit that was going to do a CD-ROM-based magazine. And it was going well and interesting until, of course, the internet really hit the scene and people didn't need to go to the store to buy CDs to transmit digital information. So I ended up working uh, for Canada's largest newspaper uh, in what turned out to be a 16-year career at that company, helping them launch their website because uh, I had some digital media experience. I'd used the internet, which was a big deal back in uh, 1996, I think, or 95 around that time. And, uh, and I ended up with a very long career at a very large newspaper where I ended up running the digital division uh, for the last seven years of my stay there. We had about a dozen companies in the digital portfolio, including job boards and advertising sales organizations and group, group online competitors. <clears throat> and uh, I really enjoyed participating in the disruptive nature of things, although from doing it from within a company that was being disrupted was a political hot potato that was hard to handle. Ultimately, uh, newspaper companies kind of didn't really embrace the internet for its nature. They tried to resist it. They tried to hold it back. And ultimately, the, the internet came like a tidal wave and pretty much wiped them out. Um, and and I, I, after working there for a time, I did a number of things in private equity um, and stumbled across Bitcoin in 2013 uh, as something interesting, something that uh, I was also studying philosophy on the side. I was really interested in the philosophy of freedom, a big student of Ayn Rand's uh, philosophy of objectivism. And uh, so, and a fellow objectivist taught, asked me, have you ever heard of Bitcoin? It's this internet money that nobody knows who created it. That's not issued by a government. And that was the beginning for me. I fell down, fell down the rabbit hole there. I started reading about it. I read the white paper. I started spending you know, many, many hours talking with this individual. And it became an obsession, I guess, as it does for so many people uh, falling down this rabbit hole. I continued to work for in private equity and business leadership for probably the next seven years or so. And the company that I was running at the time that the COVID crisis hit was one that was really instantly decimated by COVID. The business was classroom training and keynote speaking. <clears throat> and long before any government um, <clears throat> excuse me, said there's lockdowns, people volu were voluntarily canceling classrooms and voluntarily canceling all, any events that they had where they had keynote speeches. So this, this business that had, that had been the company that I was running went, went to zero instantly. It was just, it was devastating. So I, I terminated myself in a downsizing uh, activity and uh, wondered what to do with my time. And uh, as we all know, there weren't really that many jobs around the time that the COVID crisis was hitting. Uh, so I was living off of my savings and the, the stimmy checks, I guess, that some of us were getting, which wasn't really significant. And um, and I kept studying Bitcoin. Uh, I was, it was 
it was really what I was spending a tremendous amount of my time li listening to podcasts, reading, uh, and, and I decided I wanted to write about it at one point. So around February of 2021, I said, I'm just going to dedicate my full time to writing about Bitcoin. I have, I have ideas about it that I haven't really seen people express. I have ways of expressing it that I haven't seen people use. And so I'm, just, I'm going to start writing about Bitcoin. I'm going to see what happens. I made this kind of vow to myself that if I take care of Bitcoin, Bitcoin will take care of me. And, and I really poured myself into it. I, uh, I started writing a series that ended up becoming, well, I started writing a series called Why Bitcoin, which were all these very short articles, only about two to three minutes long a piece that would answer a different common question that people had about Bitcoin. Why does it do, why does it rely on energy? Why does it use physics? Why, why does it even exist? Uh, and, and so I would write these very short pieces. Why should you choose Bitcoin out of all these different things? And, uh, and they were starting to catch on. People were starting to share them. And, um, and I got approached to make them into an ebook and put, put that ebook on a website. And eventually I turned it into a whole book. But this writing career, uh, writing about Bitcoin and offering my, my take on it and my style started to develop. And, uh, and as I wrote, I discovered more. Because writing, writing really forces you to think. Uh, if you want to say something that people want to read. And so uh, I think I, I fell even deeper down this Bitcoin rabbit hole. So something that had been quite an obsession already for seven years became a very intense interest uh, and a full-time activity for, for the last couple of years. And it's basically my two-year anniversary now of having been fully dedicated to Bitcoin and having found myself employed in it for a year and a half of that time. That's my background. Great. Well, happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But you, you found Bitcoin uh, early, right? You were pretty early in the space. Like, was it 2013? Yeah, 2013 is when I first heard about it and studied it and started and started my journey of trying to get my hands on some and then doing something stupid with it and losing most of it and then try and then realizing how precious and scarce it was and how important it was not to gamble with it or be frivolous with it. So learning respect for it and understanding of how to use it. But it's been, the whole thing has been a, a journey of getting your, getting one's hands dirty. Cause I, I think that's the best way to learn about Bitcoin is not just to read and listen, but to do. Because once you start doing, you you first of all you validate every or or invalidate everything that other people have told you, and that's one of the big ethos uh, of Bitcoin is don't trust, verify, uh, and using it for yourself is a terrific way of verifying. So, so when you um, actually, yeah, you know, what was that moment of of kind of finding Bitcoin for you? Because I find that normally, you know, in people's kind of origin story there of how they found Bitcoin, normally has a seed about their own personality. Uh, you know, I find that quite a lot of people, they, they find it at, at quite a pivotal time in their life. So how did that look like for you? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as people say, it's falling down the rabbit hole. There were there are different levels and different depths of falling down. Like when I first heard about it, it was this fascinating, interesting thing, which might someday be worth a lot of money. I, I was doing private equity at the time. And so almost every single day I had entrepreneurs coming in and pitching investment in their companies. And they would ask me, what do you think my business is worth based off of their PowerPoint presentation? And I would say somewhere between zero and all the money in the world to not be com committed. And then I saw this Bitcoin thing and I was like, oh my God, this is either going to be worth zero or all the money in the world someday. It's uh, And it really felt serious about that. 
And the more that, and so I really wanted to probe the curiosity that I had that I was using to analyze businesses and see what their claims were, drew me into Bitcoin because it had, I, I, I was introduced to it from a freedom loving philosophy uh, friend. Uh, and so the freedom aspect was always there, but so was this enforcement. So was this, right, the mathematical side of it. It, it. it just is such a unique thing that exists. And every every angle that you study it, at, it keeps me informed. It, it's so well put together. And, you know, the, the math fits together with the freedom concepts, fits together with the closed system, fits together with how it connects to the reality of the world through energy, all of these pieces of it. And I mean, I could go on in many, in many different ways, but it, it's, it's philosophically, mathematically, physically, you know, in all of these dimensions, it's closed, tight and integrated uh, in this harmonious manner. So it, it was just hard to stop studying it. And, and then as one studies it, one has these moments of epiphanies that really strike one as deep. Like I, years, years later, so 2013 was all this initial stuff, like how much might a Bitcoin be worth if there's only 21 million and there's 300 million houses just in you know, the Western world? That means know one bitcoin might be worth many houses uh, so you you started to do all this math and it was you know dollar signs lit up in your eyes or bitcoin signs lit up in your eyes but then i remember i was just walking through the forest in uh probably 2021 sometime and thinking about uh how this forest has been here since before i live in canada since before canada was called canada and this tree is older than canada and this tree will be here after we no longer have something called canada and I realized like, you know, countries are just lines we draw on maps. And so obviously the currency of a country is temporary. Uh, it's, it's a reflection of what people believe after they believe that the lines drawn on a map constitute an actual nation. And Bitcoin doesn't rely on any of those lines drawn on maps. It just relies on the laws of physics. And those have been here since the dawn of the universe and they will stay here until the end of the universe. And so the Bitcoin has this forever quality. It has this independence of state that doesn't, it just relies on the laws of math and physics. Uh, and, and in doing that, it's this institution that will outlive nations. And, and we kind of look at nations as these most powerful entities and powerful long lasting institutions. And here we have an institution that's going to outlast all of these things because the only things it relies on is math and physics. And those things are, of course, accessible to everybody. And so, it, again, just reinforced these notions of Bitcoin being very much about freedom and freedom from the state, freedom from a country, being it itself is free from the state and free from the country. And so these properties inherit to the people who use it. And I think that those kinds of insights are the ones that really took me down the freedom aspect of it. But you see how closely it tied freedom is to physics and math and Bitcoin. And it's like, wow, when, you, when you've actually brought together physics and freedom, you've merged science and philosophy. We've merged morality and physicality in a way that hasn't been done before. And, and you have it in a working system. It's not some theory. It works in practice, right? It's not, it's not communism or capitalism fighting it out, each one telling the other, well, that's not real communism and this is not real capitalism. So both of them using that as the excuse for why things aren't working. It's like, this is real Bitcoin and it really works. And 
there's no excuses and no, nobody's saying, oh, you know, just get, just let put me in charge of Bitcoin and I'll do it right. As, as people say with, with either capitalism or socialism, Bitcoin works right as it works. And the whole point is nobody needs to be put in charge of it and nobody should be put in charge of it and nobody can be put in charge of it. Again, connecting this to this notion of that's what freedom really means. If nobody's in charge, then nobody's their slave. Yeah, a, a lot of thoughts came to mind just then when you were talking about that, because, you know, I, I have this kind of sense that it, it, it's, it's not even really a sense, it's a firm conviction that, you know, the natural state of the human condition is freedom, like to, to be free is kind of mm -hmm. imbued within us, like as a as a pursuit, which, which anyone who is kind of, I, I don't think that everyone is necessarily on this path at all times. But I think that the it's almost like the universe is willing you to walk a path of freedom and the people who are not walking a path of freedom in my view generally they're out of alignment of uh, they're, they're out of alignment somewhere like the, the path should be uh, one of trending towards more freedom and bitcoin has kind of come into the into the world as this as this thing which which kind of really it almost um puts us on that kind of hockey stick curve towards that thing which we're all you know inherently um kind of ascribing yeah. to to live by you know we, we have this thing and the fact that it's come in through mathematics as you said you know what if if this is a truth in the world that trending towards more freedom is the a kind of universal pursuit it, it would make sense that mathematics which is you know the fundamental laws of the universe that that is the conduit for experiencing this thing or for kind of putting us on the trajectory of of truly living and abiding by that thing yeah. So you're getting into something that's almost spiritual, right? It's like the, the yeah, spiritual think, essence of freedom. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think there is something there. Yeah. I think that there is something in the nature of, you know, if, if you believe that freedom is the natural condition, then we're going to find in the, in the very base level of reality, we're going to find clues as to that. And, you know, I would even argue that something like gold um, has this to an extent as well. You know, we found, we found this, this element, which we can't, you know, we can't create it. We can't, um, get it for anything. It's, it's found, it's there. And that's the only access that we have to it. It's almost like it was just delivered there, um, in some sense to us to, to experience and to, for us to kind of incorporate. Um, but now we have this new thing, which we've discovered through maths, you know, we found these secrets within maths, you know, through cryptography, et cetera, which kind of almost, they 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 go even further you know it's it's taking this this concept and saying okay now you don't even need an element now now you don't even need a physical thing now we can through the use of mathematics we can experience this scarcity and scarcity seems to kind of you know lead on uh naturally mm -hmm. to uh, you know aspects of freedom because you know scarcity and property mm -hmm. rights are very in intertwined and you kind of end up on this uh, on this path towards more freedom through these do these scarce things in the world and when it's provided by mathematics that's almost like a, you know a super high level experiential uh, well, version of that yeah i, I think it's, it's interesting we have to almost define the word freedom right nobody nobody is free to violate the laws of the universe they are you know we're, we're all constrained by exactly what they are even if we don't know what they are right? people didn't have to know the newton's equations to know that they were being pulled towards the earth uh, that when you drop something, it would fall and it would fall according to those laws, even if we hadn't yet discovered a way to describe those laws with mathematical precision. Uh, but nobody's, but what freedom really refers to is not having your ability to act within those laws constrained by other people. 
right? to have somebody else tell you that you can't do A or you can't do B, which the laws of physics would allow you to do. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of where Bitcoin comes in and says, well, we're going to do this with money. We're going to create money that nobody can take from you, nobody can seize from you because it's hidden behind a number so large and so randomly generated that no amount of computing horsepower in the universe could ever get to that number. So as long as you write it down and don't lose it and put your Bitcoin in that number, it's stored in your head or stored in some kind of file that nobody else can take by force. That's that's really powerful because here, even if they have, even if they're using the forces of the laws of nature, kinetic energy, physical energy, heat energy, whatever kind of energy they're attempting to use, electric energy, they can't take this property from you. They can with gold. So many wars have been fought over gold. So many times in history, gold has been seized. You know, someone said, Look, trust me, let me hold it for you. Or somebody came with a, with the weapon of the time and said, we're taking the gold. But that can't be done with Bitcoin. And I think that's this revolutionary insight that so many Bitcoin freedom advocates say, this is what makes it different from gold. Gold, sadly, failed as the world's money. It all got seized. It all got put in Fort Knox in the Bank of England. And then one day, Richard Nixon said, nobody's ever getting any of it back. He stole all the gold in the world in, in one television announcement, and there was nothing anybody could do about it. I shouldn't say all the gold in the world, but he's, you know, it, it's backing for currency. And Bitcoin, you can't do that. You don't need to surrender custody of it to a central teller because you yourself can divide it and verify it and send it anywhere and secure it anywhere in the world. And so that's really the one aspect of the big revolution that we can have money that obeys the laws of freedom, that nobody can tell us what to do with it. Nobody can seize it by force. And, and now we're empowered to do something as individuals that we couldn't do before. Uh, and it's with money, which is one half of every transaction in the world. There's what you're trading your money for, and that's and that's really powerful. And and so it's also very peaceful because if you've got a freedom audience, I'm sure many of them have read Francisco's money speech from Atlas Shrugged, where uh, where Francisco says. Oh, that money is what allows men to deal with each other through peace. Either You either deal with men through a gun or you deal with them through something honorable as money, something that is a promise that other people will do work in exchange for it in the future. And once again, we, we have Bitcoin being presented as this peaceful revolution, this peaceful monetary revolution, because it is just money that doesn't require the use of force. It doesn't obey weapons. You can point a gun out of Bitcoin, but it won't do anything. Uh, it, you know, you can't seize Bitcoin through the use of guns. Uh, you you need to learn the numbers. You need to know the knowledge. If some if I own Bitcoin and you come and you shoot me in the you know if I've got Bitcoin in one pocket and gold in another and you shoot me, you can take the gold, but you can't take the Bitcoin. The Bitcoin goes with me. So it's this is this is the revolutionary technology that represents a revolution in freedom. Yes. Uh, it, where we can store our wealth and save our wealth, agree on a medium of exchange that resists violence, that resists the use of force. And that is, that is a big part of freedom. Freedom isn't just freedom also, but by the standards of freedom advocates isn't, well, I'm free to use the laws of physics to kill you. I'm free to use the laws of physics to take whatever I want. If I've got the use of force on my side, 
freedom is this notion that we respect rights and rights are a very advanced notion, especially if you come at it from Ayn Rand's perspective, but from, from anywhere, right? Rights being recognized and accepted is a is historically recent and understanding which rights exist and trying to enforce the protection of rights relies on this whole corruptible mechanism of a government that recognizes rights and that carries through enforcing rights. And yet the freedom movement is as big as it is right now because what we actually see is the opposite of that, right? We see governments violating rights in increasing amounts. And so Bitcoin doesn't look to the government to say, hey, you ought to do this because it said so on a piece of paper that men signed a couple of hundred years ago. It says, I'm now using the laws of physics and math to prevent you from violating certain rights. And there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. So, um, yeah, a lot of interesting points there. So what you were saying there about, um, you know, the nature of um, like violence, you know, being essentially violence being the key tool that you can infringe on someone's prof- property rights. You know, I, I guess I've not thought about it this way before, but essentially we we all believe, or, you know, most of us, like good people generally believe in property rights and that you should be entitled to the property that you've worked for, et cetera. And you should be able to, to, to have that pro- property and that someone else cannot come and use violence to take it. And obviously, you know, with gold, yes, it's hard money. Yes, it's it's scarce, et cetera. But it still suffers from the problem of, you know, force can overcome it. Ultimately, you are still at the at the dispense of someone who decides to use force um, against you. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether the entire reason we have governments, right? You know, the, I mean, the, at least the original premise of governments was to protect property rights. You know, that was supposed to be what governments were about. Now, obviously, we've moved a long way from that. But governments essentially have rights respecting emerged. governments, right? Like I, I don't think I don't think monarchs were there to protect anybody else's property rights other than their own, right? The, the armies were to protect the, the monarch owned this owned everything within the reign, and all the property was theirs. And if they let you use some of the property, it was through their divine majesty that they permitted it for you. So, but if we think of the modern state following the United States of America. Uh, that has a bill of rights or some other charter of rights claiming that the citizenry or even just anyone living there has certain inalienable rights and that the purpose of the government is to protect those rights. So that that was a huge turning point in in the history of government where it, it was meant to serve the people, for the people, by the people, of the people. But essentially, we were we we required governments in some way to protect a right because it wasn't it wasn't in, it wasn't within our ability essentially to to actually defend that right. That that right was okay. Who's got the biggest guns? Who's you know who's um, capable of doing the most the, the most violence, etc. Um, now we have this kind of paradigm shift with Bitcoin where it says, well, we don't we don't need now the government to defend that right. I don't need the government to defend my property. My property can be defended. Um, depending upon how capable I am individually, you know, everyone has um, an equal ability now to defend their property. It can't be seized. It can't be, you know, seized with guns, etc. Okay, you might have varying degrees of how you're able to obscure it. Should someone decide to come and, you know, essentially enact violence on you and say, "Hey, give me your Bitcoin," you might have various degrees of how you've planned for that. But essentially, it kind of brings it back to a individual kind of meritocratic sense, rather than saying no. I'm going to, you know, require a government to to defend this right. It puts it kind of into the individual control. So just before I end this point, um, you know, if you can speak to that, but also, 
but also the nature of governments generally. Like, where where do you think with this new paradigm shift? Where does that leave the nature of government, and and how do you see that this kind of paradigm shift taking place on a political scale? Yeah, I, I mean, there's a few great questions in what in what you posed. I, I think oh, I don't have a prepared answer, so I'm going to go stream of consciousness here. Sure. I think one of the things that's really important is in these nations which respect the which allegedly respect the rights of their citizens, it is a limitation on government that the government is not meant to violate these rights. Like we also make it a criminal offense for other people to attempt to violate certain of these rights, property rights and the right to life. If somebody kills you, that's a that's a crime. But if somebody doesn't permit you to speak freely on their property, that's not a violation of your freedom of speech because their property rights uh, trump this. But the government is meant to be forbidden from violating your freedom of expression. And so the, the notion is that these rights are limitations on what government itself can do. It's limited government is, is, is where freedom comes from. And, and we talk about limited government, we need that adjective because we had unlimited government before. We had whatever the king says goes, whatever the dictator says goes. And that's why we still view dictatorships as highly immoral forms of government. Um, and what we've seen happen over hundreds of years as governments have grown bigger and as nations have grown wealthier, is that the government has become so big that it's involved in everything. It's involved in education. It's involved in regulating how food is ma grown, manufactured, supplied. Right? We, have, we have all these regulations, which are limitations on freedom. You're, some of them seem very sensible on the surface, right? You're not allowed to sell food that's poisonous because that'll kill people. We're not going to let the free market decide that. We're going to have the FDA decide that. You're not allowed to sell drugs that might be addictive or dangerous, although most of FDA-approved drugs or many FDA drugs are, in fact, addictive and dangerous if, if misused and often misused. So we've just had the government become so much bigger. Right? You can look at the history of when all of these government agencies in any country came into being, and they, they were initially brought into being to protect people, but something's gone a little off. Uh, they've they've become, in a sense, tainted by the fact that the industries that they regulate are so big and so involved in every single person's lives, and literally everything you learn from when you're a child, which is education, which there are government mandated curriculums, and so you're indoctrinated by government to the food that you're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat, to the medicines you're allowed to take and not allowed to take. To, you know, to how you're allowed and not allowed to build houses, to what weapons you are allowed, what, what forms of self-defense you are and are not allowed. So that this whole notion of freedom has become very, very cloudy and very, very compromised. And there are lots of licenses that are needed or agencies. And we just, we don't really live in a happy-go-lucky free thing. It's like there are laws constraining our activities everywhere we look. And they're not necessarily all bad, but they all are constraints on freedom. And and so we live in this world that's kind of this jumbled half free and half regulated environment. And 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 one really has to take responsibility to think for oneself to say what what ought I be be permitted to do or what ought maybe the better way is to say 
who's going to stop me? What ought people be forbidden from doing? Right? It should be a smaller set of things. And that's what the laws are meant to be. But we, when we get laws that are not read and 1,300 pages written overnight and passed overnight, we're not really thinking about what people ought not to do. It's, it's really a lot of hands in the, in the pot trying to take a, a bunch of wealth through the mechanisms of government. And I think that's what Bitcoin really comes back at. It says there's a lot of questionable motives behind a lot of what goes on in politics and government nowadays. And we want to be able to put an end to those things. And, uh, and so if the money can't be printed out of thin air through pieces of legislation, then legislators won't waste their time and use their energy and take advantage of people by printing money out of thin air and enriching themselves or enriching their lobbyists, enriching their supporters, where after they leave the federal agencies, they're going to get a cushy job at some pharmaceutical or education or food consulting company. And, And I think that's where... Bitcoin fixes that, that when there's a saying in the Bitcoin community, Bitcoin fixes this referring to almost anything. And it, and it would be if the money wasn't broken, because it's also fix the money, fix the world. If the money wasn't broken, if it wasn't so easy to print up $3 trillion and distribute big chunks of it to your friends and little junk chunks to everybody else. So everybody thinks that they're getting something, then these sorts of behaviors wouldn't take place. And we might end up with, far less regulation, far less war, far less epidemics of obesity. Far, like, none of these regulations seem to have really helped with addiction, obesity, intelligence. And we're not a smarter nation, I don't think, uh, than we used to be. We're not healthier than we used to be. Something's off. And, and the more that the government is here to help us, the more off these things seem to get. And I think that's what Bitcoiners are hoping we can fix by having sound unseasonable money. Yeah, so that that leads me on to a, something else that I was going to talk to you about, actually, which is fiat con- culture in general. I, I'm not sure I've heard you talk on this point specifically, but like, you know, you're you're also, you know, a, a kind of student of, of RAND and like I've got into Ayn RAND quite recently. I've only just finished um, The Fountainhead, I was. I, I heard Alex Alex Fexky say say that that was that should be the first one to read before you go to Atlas Shrugged, which obviously is her kind of more pivotal work. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it definitely it definitely made me kind of think of things in a different way. And in particular, you know, it it really we talk a lot about fiat culture in in the Bitcoin community, um, and you know how kind of corrupt it's become and how Bitcoin ultimately. It fixes it you know like uh through the incentives that it that it provides in society that it's going to kind of repair um a lot of these kind of the broken aspects of our of our culture and after reading the fountainhead i really realized that ayn rand kind of spoke about this a long time ago i mean obviously it's in a, in a more kind of narrative form but really mm-hmm. like the fountainhead it, it articulates very well um kind of the broken nature of fiat, fiat culture and in particular you've kind of got these um you know, I won't uh, kind of hash on it too much because obviously, you know, a lot of people haven't read it. But, you know, you've kind of got these these, these two kind of key characters in uh, Howard Rourke and you've got uh, Peter Keating and, and and they're kind of like these, these oppositional characters. And one of them, you know, is is very, very kind of assured and, and kind of gives to the world based upon his talent. And he wants to 
kind of um, create things. He's he's a kind of creator. And then you have Peter Keating, who essentially is a kind of a he's kind of a taker, you know, in the world. Like everything is kind of through fiat means, essentially. All of his kind of successes aren't through his own kind of volition and his own um, essentially meritocratic action. It, it's through kind of fiat means, etc. So I guess this is a kind of a long a long way of, of coming back to this idea of fiat culture. And what do you, what do you absor- observe? What do you observe out there, you know, in the world, in the kind of fiat world, since obviously, you know, you spend so much of your time thinking about and writing about Bitcoin, et cetera. Do you, like I do, kind of sense this real, um, I, I guess this just this this huge rift that, in my view, we need something as powerful as Bitcoin to really repair it? Like, yeah, can, can you kind of speak to, to the nature of fiat culture and, and how, how Bitcoin addresses it? Sure. Well, fiat being the Latin word for by decree, right? And so there's, there's you can't, really decree reality into being you can't decree i demand you know i decree that you figure out the rules of physics i decree that you create a vaccine for a new virus within three months that nobody knows the nature of it I, but that's that's the nature of the culture right politicians promise and decree i will i will forgive student debt i will i will make so i, I will somehow make things that took effort and when we had to build schools professors had to deliver the knowledge students had to show up there it'll be free it won't have cost anything it won't have taken place these notions that you can wave your hands or write words and change the nature of reality is the whole problem with trying to rule by decree i decree that everyone will take the vaccine that we just came up with and invented and if they don't i decree they will not be permitted to go to their jobs or that we will force them somehow i decree and so when you lead by decree that's obviously not freedom right that's obviously something very different than freedom it's a form of dictatorship and and we talk about fiat as fiat money because no matter how much freedom is allowed outside of it if someone can decree money into existence they're basically stealing wealth at the same time. I don't know if I decree a trillion dollars to myself and I can get away and you can't tell my decreed trillion dollars from the two trillion other dollars that are the, in the economy that people had to work for. I'm walking around, you know, suddenly everybody's lost a third of their purchasing power. And this is what everyone was warning about. Well, everyone, at least all the Bitcoiners and many other sound money advocates were warning about as the decrees around COVID were happening, for example, in the last couple of years, they said, beware, the value of the dollar will be lost. And that's experienced through what we call inflation. And here we are today with the government panicking, decreeing that they're going to print more money or print less money or raise interest rates or do, do things to try to get this inflation out of control. Well, who caused the inflation? They did by decreeing money into existence to pretend that even though people aren't going to work, work is getting done. To pretend that even people aren't, even though people aren't producing goods and services, we don't need to produce them. And then suddenly we have a shortage of all these goods and services. And lo and behold, all this extra money that we printed is trying to buy less goods and services than previously existed. And we find that the prices are much higher. What a shock. So this, this to me is the flaw in fiat culture. And it only needs to be fiat in the money, although we have fiat. And we saw lots of decrees being issued over the last few years about what was and wasn't permitted. And, you know, and again, maybe some of these things came from a good place. But when the money itself is broken, these t- kind of terribly uh, 
terribly thought out long-term decisions, right? And decisions that will have very negative consequences in the long term can be evaded in the short term. And and that's exactly what we see the politicians and, and institutions that get involved in money do. And and it breaks things. And I, I think things are really broken right now. There's, I heard a statistic the other day that through the COVID crisis, 40% of small businesses in America shut down. That's a staggering statistic, even if it's even if it's doubled, it's staggering. Right? It basically says the beneficiaries of this fiat system are the are the big. They're they're the ones who were able to survive. Walmart wasn't shut down. It was the local convenience store, the lo- the local store that was shut down that never recovered from uh, from the COVID lockdowns, which were issued by decree rather than by people choosing what is safe for them or what risks they're prepared to take. So it was again somebody else making decisions on behalf of people, not freedom, and and people saying, "Don't worry, we're giving you stimulus checks, we're giving you we're giving you money, so everything will be fine." But it turned out not to be fine in the long run. And now we have people with poor with worse jobs working multiple jobs, deeper in debt than than they've ever been, prices higher than they've ever been. So people are people have become poor, and they become poor as as a result of of fiat culture, uh, which is the way that you were framing the question. So I, th- I think it's very dangerous and it has to come to an end sometime soon because we're getting to such a hyper fiat version of things like the, the frequency with which trillion dollar bills are passed, trillion dollar spending bills are passed and they're called the anti-inflation or the Inflation Reduction Act when when what they're doing is inflating the supply of money by a, a, tri- a trillion or a trillion point five dollars. This is this is just not sustainable. And, and we've had a very long history of the dollar losing its purchasing power because of these things. But I do wonder if we're getting to a point where there's accelerating uh, loss of purchasing power and accelerating loss of freedom. And what, what if I bring it back to Bitcoin, because that's what you were asking about, the notion that we can actually take the money back without some kind of revolution to overturn the state, just to say, we're going to use this money instead of the state issued money. We're going to take the power of issuing money by decree away from the state. And that will fix a lot of the state because if politicians can't just decree money into existence, then they won't. And they'll, they'll have to keep their promises. They'll, they'll have to actually come up with real solutions rather than these makeover solutions like that. They're putting lipstick on a pig and saying, look at all the money that I gave to these people. But it wasn't money that came from people doing work and creating something valuable in the world. It was money that just magically appeared. And so it, so no more wealth exists in the nation. They just managed to move more into some pockets. And typically, you know, it, it's even worse because it doesn't actually move it into the claimed beneficiaries' pockets. There's more money that's helping some kind of really big industry receive a disproportionate share of it. So that, so the fiat culture is all about this game of tug of war, of moving wealth around without doing any work, whereas the real culture is about manufacturing things. And this all started with your question about the fountainhead. And the, the hero of that book really creates original architecture, original buildings. And and the other character is second-handed in nature, copying. And, and, he's, and he's against a, a world like... He's against a war- the hero is against a world where everybody copies and everybody imitates yeah. and everybody says nothing should change and nothing should improve. And, and people who don't know what they're doing 
create institutions that claim that give them alleged authority, right? So again, there's this beauty in uh, if I take it back to how Bitcoin works, it, nobody can claim to be an expert on Bitcoin and change how Bitcoin works. It just works. It works the way it does. And so self-proclaimed experts are kind of laughed at um, by Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't care whether you claim to be an expert at it. But, you know, our society does care whether somebody claims to be an expert in virology or, or something else like that. A long-winded answer to a, yeah, a no, long that's, question. Um... That that that's a great point, and I and I do think that I do think that we what we've seen recently. I mean, I guess recently it's been kind of exacerbated. I, I think especially since twenty twenty, the number of times that we we've heard the word experts and trust the experts, and it doesn't yeah. matter how how you know wrong the experts are. It doesn't matter you know. And then if the experts turn out to to be wrong, they just say, oh well, the science changed. You know, sorry, the science changed. You know. And this yeah. is the world that we're living in. And this is why, you know, I see parallels with with stuff like uh, the work of Rand and things like that. It's because I, I think it was almost prophetic, uh, prophetic the way that she, she kind of uh, wrote about these ideas, because I think that now we are in this, we're seeing this, this kind of fiat culture of, you know, essentially like where truth doesn't matter, you know, um, we're mm-hmm. seeing that kind of come to a real collision course with something which is based on pure truth, you know, cryptography and math, that's that's as true as you get. You don't get more more true than that, right? So yeah. like, I think that when you have something introduced into the world that that is in its essence, you know, of truth, uh, you know, it, it mm-hmm. operates based upon, you know, every single block is just an additional kind of element of, of, of truth being added to, the, to this chain, which you can kind of yeah. trace back and, you know, which anyone can kind of verify. When you have something like that come into the world, it almost seems to kind of pave this way like a giant snowplow just moving uh, moving out of the way all forms of fiat you know through its kind of very existence yeah well just take a look all of these bill all of these bills and this is the point right all of these bills they don't talk about how many schools they're building or how many pounds of food they're growing they talk about how many dollars they're spending they talk about it in monetary terms and i and i think that's there's the rub, right? Bitcoin is fixing the money and the money is what's broken in all of these things because all of these dollars, where do they come from? They're not increased tax revenues. They're, they're debt, right? That we're raising the debt ceiling again. And every one of these things is just saying we're making up a lie of what money is when it's whatever we say it is today. Today, there's $1.2 trillion. Today, the interest rate on money is 5%. Tomorrow, everyone will hang on the words of one man who will tell us what he's changing it to and they'll hang on the other words to signal is he indicating he's going to raise them this is dictate this is what a dictatorship looks like right it's one man dictates what something is or a very small group of people dictate what something is to the rest of us and then we all have to scramble and make sense of of what they've done this is what we need freedom from and that's what and that's what bitcoin represents is there's a fixed supply you know exactly at what rate it's being issued you have to work for it. Nobody gets any of it for free. It can't be stolen, can't be seized. It can't be inflated by these types of people or any type of person at all. It's egalitarian in that sense. Right? Everyone plays by the same rules. And that's fairness. So do you think that do you think that governments have a chance in this new world that we're going into? Because you know, when I when I actually extrapolate out where I think that things will go based upon this, I mean, you know we've governments have always had some ability to to seize money and now we're kind of creating a system which is you know fully private 
you know, fully decentralized. Governments have no ability to to issue it. They don't even have an ability to know um, that it's been earned. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot and, you know, I get this a lot, you know, by by people, you know, some of them are my listeners who are kind of more down there. You know, they're, they're really down the privacy rabbit hole and they say, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin isn't private enough because, you know, it doesn't have ring signatures and this kind of thing. And therefore, you know, Monero, uh, you know, we should be using that or whatever. But the way I see see this going is, you know, obviously we are iterating uh, upon the privacy issues and, you know, things like the Lightning Network have done a good job towards that. And, you know, there's, there's way more privacy stuff coming down the line. But one of the things which I think is often missed from this conversation is that when we... um when we have a situation where people aren't just going to an exchange to buy the Bitcoin, which is generally the way it goes right now, you go to an exchange, you buy the Bitcoin, you have to go through these KYC uh, kind of systems, the government knows what you're buying. But when we start earning Bitcoin, when when that becomes the norm, when we kind of are in this more hyper Bitcoinized world and people say, hey, you know, like I can just accept, um, I can just accept Bitcoin and I just spin up a, an address there and then and I accept the Bitcoin and nobody is going to have any idea uh, that I've earned it. You over time, you're going to kind of create this um, this kind of trend towards more privacy, and I think that over time, when that happens, the government's going to have much less ability to even know what people are uh, owning. You know, I mean, I think Obama once said that um, he said something like Bitcoin is is like a an offshore bank account in your back pocket or something like that. You know, so I'm Swiss bank account, but yeah, I remember the quote. Yeah, yeah. Swiss bank account. That's the one, and. Um, now we have the ability for everyone to essentially, you know, have their own um, almost tax haven, right? You are you are free to declare it, but most people, as we find, you know, if you hand someone cash, if you hand, um, you know, someone who comes around to do some work in your house, like an electrician or whatever, you hand them cash in hand, like 98% of the time, they're never going to declare that. Nobody declares cash, right? Now we're moving into this kind of cashless society and Bitcoin offers this ability to, to go even further. To, to literally, you know, for everyone to earn and in a way that they won't necessarily be declaring these things. So I think that when people don't have to declare these things, they won't. And especially when government's ballooning out of control and they want more and more money through taxation. I think that you're going to kind of create these um, almost dark economies, like a, a dark economy is going to emerge. And that paired with the fact that governments now can't print the money, I don't know how they're going to get the money to to kind of fund themselves as government. So the way I see this going is that eventually we are going to have extremely limited government purely through the nature of, you know, following um, along the path of the incentives that are, that are going to play out. You know, maybe we will have some, some uh, form of government, but, you know, what it will be, in my view, is that government will look like what government should be providing if it was if it was in a voluntary society. You know, maybe it makes sense yeah. to have governments build your roads and everyone says, hey, you know what, like it would suck to not have roads. So therefore, I'm willing to spend this money and I'm willing to to kind of voluntarily part with it, even though nobody's putting a gun to my head and nobody has any idea that I even have this money. Um, I'm going to um, put this money forward because we need the roads, etc. I think that we're going to just trend towards this kind of voluntary society at least to some degree which is going to look completely different from how things look now and yeah. i'm interested to know if you've kind of gone down that or, or how far really you've gone down that um that rabbit hole and thought about what's the end game like where are we where are we going to end up in in your view are we going to end up in a fully voluntarist kind of society or you know do you think that governments will be around in, in some form mm -hmm. like how do you see that going yeah, well, I mean, it, I don't think we reach some final singularity point uh, or the one that I can at least see within our lifetimes. I think we're continually going to see 
favorable progress towards increased freedom uh, over over the coming generations. Even I mean, th- this may be a shift. You know, how long did it take for Americans to lose the freedom to the point that they are today? Well, we're a little bit less free today than we were before the last omnibus bill was passed and a little bit less free than before the bill, omnibus bill before that and a little less free before the most recent administ- uh, um, agency was created, right? It's been a death of a thousand cuts for freedom uh, with each agency and each added regulation that, that's gone away. And I think we're, we're at this turning point where Bitcoin, for those who are able to go down its path, opens up newer and newer freedoms and it opens our eyes. And so it's impossible to predict in what order, like will we private, what more people are taking their children out of public education, as an example, and they're homeschooling them, whether they're Bitcoiners or, or, or not. And that's a form of freedom for freedom from being dictated to what children will be taught. Some of these experiments will go well, some, some will probably will go worse. Right. Uh, so there's this, free free exploration of of the space of freedom that's that's happening and so it's very unpredictable it's very it's very chaotic nobody can tell the speed no one can tell what failures and successes will happen but that's the way we actually learn things right that's the way we actually develop things we don't develop them by saying you shall develop the perfect education system you figure it out through trial and error you you know nobody says to a baby walk a baby figures out how to stand up and make falls down and then gets its balance and then takes one step and falls and then figures out how to take subsequent steps. That's how we learn everything. And so I think Bitcoin allows us to be in a position where we can learn how to be free again, how to be freer. And I, I don't want to say like we're all slaves, but you know, we, to some degree we are. Uh, to some degree, a lot of our efforts are seized and we're forced to behave in certain ways and comply with certain things that are outside the scope of what rational freedom really, really is. So we're going to start to experiment in that direction. And I don't know which countries will move fastest, which ones will might even suffer setbacks, which ones will leap forward, because it's, it's, not, it's not possible to predict. It's a chaotic process. Uh, it's a process that's based off of freedom and nobody can predict what will happen under freedom. And it's, it's, you see, it's that fear of the chaos and freedom that makes so many people lean towards, let's get this under control. Who can handle freedom? Freedom is chaos. Freedom is anarchy. Freedom is dangerous. Let's put somebody in charge and pass a law and that way none of this bad stuff will happen. And that's the, you know, that's the path to hell because we end up not being able to explore all these areas that we didn't foresee that are better than what the dictator said we ought to do yeah yeah it's almost like bitcoin is a kind of a sandbox for you know what's what's society going to look like when we're not being continuously Mm -hmm. stolen from right and uh you know right now you know we're in a sandbox to some degree um, but you know the problem is that it's poisoned, right? It's poisoned by the ability of governments to, to print money, which which fundamentally kind of distorts all of the the price signals. You know, I mean, um, yeah. I have these these conversations with some of my kind of like left leaning friends, you know, which I, I used to be one of those as well, right? Like until finding Bitcoin, which um, kind of exposed me to a lot more, uh, I guess, kind of anarchist thinking and, and things like that, libertarian ideas. Um, but, you know, I'll have conversation with them and they'll say, oh, well, you know, what about um, what about healthcare? What about this? You know, how, how are people going to afford this? And it's like, well, 
We don't know because we right now we have a system where government dis- distorts all the price signals. Maybe healthcare would become cheaper. Maybe people would be healthier yeah. because the incentives would would change, and therefore people would would eat different right. stuff and would exercise differently. Maybe not having a government there as a kind of backstop for every every problem in life would incentivize people to to live in a more responsible way. I mean, that there's so many. Um, different areas here for exploration and bitcoin kind of you know ultimately affords us the ability to experience those things and to say okay like Mm -hmm. what what is it we're going to experience what is it we're going to do what is it we're going to spend our our money on voluntarily and um Mm -hmm. you know my belief is that if you look to nature you look at how nature does this nature it's an emergent property you know the, the the best way of living seems to be an emergent property in nature um through kind of you know having freedom and experimentation you know like you say and through that you you kind of you know there's there's a kind of arrow through time there which ultimately arrives at the right conclusions now the problem is at the moment that we're, we're strangling decentralization and i think that decentralization is such a powerful force um Mm-hmm. That, we, that we need to cultivate it essentially if we don't cultivate decentralization if we don't cult- cultivate you know freedom and voluntary choice on the individual level you know then we never know what society would look like or should look like yeah yeah i i guess i'll finish off on this comment because i'm i'm running out of time I, decentralization is how nature works right like a dandelion puts out a thousand seeds and some die because they don't find the right soil but some succeed and they find the right soil and and out of them grow 500 other dandelions and some of them are different from the other ones because it's all decentralized and some, some are better at spreading seeds in the right place and some are better at capturing the sunlight. And so nature just keeps getting better and killing off that which doesn't work through random experimentation. Decentral, that, and that's decentralization. And, and this is how freedom works as well. Humans get better when they're free and some of them fail and some of them screw up, but some of them succeed. And those ones get to do more of what's successful and that's how things grow. And then when somebody comes in and says, everybody stop doing stuff freely, this is the way it's going to be done from here on in by decree. And if you do it differently, you will be arrested and imprisoned and fined. And and so the freedom is gone and, and, and the resilience of nature, right? Dandelions survive because they're free to innovate. Um, and and spread their seeds out wide, and so our our ability to thrive as human beings when we're told to all toe the line and do only one thing that somebody who is not an expert even in that thing has decreed that we do because they're corrupted to make money from some like we are held back so greatly. So I, I think I can say with tremendous confidence that if freedom was allowed to reign the human existence would be so much better. We would be so much happier. We would experience so much more abundance. We would have so many more solutions to so many of our problems. Things that we consider problems wouldn't even be problems because the problem is centralization in them. So there's a, there's a tremendous promise uh, and future for us, but it requires work. And I think that's the other thing that fiat takes away. It, it puts up the pretense that you can just write words and not do the work and get the work done. That you can say there will everyone will have breakfast. Well, that food doesn't come from you writing. Everyone will have breakfast. Food comes from doing the work of learning how to how to process how to do agriculture properly, finding the energy, finding the fertilizer, finding the seeds, harvesting the crops, processing them, shipping them, and all this stuff requires work and energy. And and when you say I'm an enemy of energy because I think fossil fuels are destroying the environment, you cut off the ability to produce food for everybody. And so you, on the one hand, you say, we'll, we'll 
prevent the use of energy and on the other hand will give everybody food energy it's a contradiction and it's and it's not going to work out and that's the problem with attempting to use government or decrees or laws to alter reality because at the end of the day reality is is what it is and i think again i just go back and i'll wrap up bitcoin leans on reality not on government it doesn't know that governments exist it doesn't know that fiat currencies exist it knows that energy exists it knows that math exists and it obeys those laws and those laws only so it corresponds with reality in a beautiful way and i think that's kind of the wake up call that it offers to so many people it's like there's reality you got to live within its constraints but you don't need to live within the constraints that other people impose upon you that's a really great point to end on. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much, Toma. Um, yeah, I didn't realize you you had a, a hard cough, but, um, you know, we covered a lot of things I wanted to. I still had a, a lot more here that I wanted to go into with you, but perhaps we'll have to save it for another conversation. For so, sure. Uh, I'd be happy to come back. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's great. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, for taking the time. And, um, yeah, if you just want to let people know real quick uh, where they can find you before we sign off. Yeah, uh, you can find me. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Strolight. Um, I published a lot of articles on Medium, also TomerStrolight.medium.com or Medium.com at TomerStrolight. I publish a lot of articles for Swan, so Swan.com/blog is where you'll find a bunch of my other stuff. I have um, I've made a movie about Bitcoin called Bitcoin is Generational Wealth. So if you Google Bitcoin is Generational Wealth followed by the word YouTube. You'll find it. It's a 14 minute, 14 and a half minute movie about what has led to monetary debasement and what we can look forward to in the future uh, when when a Bitcoin standard might emerge. And so it, that might answer at least to some degree what I what I hope for in a, in a future where Bitcoin has taken over. Uh, and uh, and there's lots of other stuff that I've got my name on, a, on lots of podcasts. Uh, I, if people want to learn more about Bitcoin, kind of listening, there's a daily uh, Twitter spaces called Cafe Bitcoin that I participate in regularly that uh, Swan Bitcoin puts on. And it's just guests who are uh, doing something in the Bitcoin space, coming up for a talk show and just general discussion of the news. So it's kind of like the current affairs uh, show on Bitcoin. That's called Cafe Bitcoin on Twitter spaces. That's probably more than enough to get people started. Yeah, great. And I, I would just reiterate, everyone should check out that that short film as well. It is really, really well made. So, uh, you know, it's um, I, I, I love sharing that with people. So congrats okay. on that film. And um, yeah, um, thanks. Thanks again for, for coming on. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again, Toma. Okay, terrific. Thanks for having me. Take care.